1: Well, thank you, Crystal, and I, too, would like to welcome everyone to today's Cancer Care Workshop, and this program is titled, For Caregivers, Care Coordination for Your Loved One Living with Cancer and Other Health Problems. And this is part five of a five-part series called Life with Cancer, A Guide to Getting the Best Care. So this is the last in that five-part series, and many of you have been on the entire program. Now, this is a collaborative effort between Cancer Care and many other cancer organizations, and it really is because of that collaboration and your interest in this topic that we have over 653 people on the program today. And you come from all of the United States, so all different parts of this country, Um, and we also have participants internationally from Argentina, Canada, and the United Kingdom. So it's a bit of a global call. Um, today's program is supported by AbbVie, Bristol-Myers Squibb, the Celgene Corporation, Takeda Oncology, an educational donation provided by Amgen, and a grant from Genentech. I really want to thank them for supporting this entire series, this five-part series, as well as their corporate collaboration and making this possible. Now, we have Really, the best speakers on today's program, just wonderful speakers. And I want to begin by introducing our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Susan Sloven. And Dr. Sloven is attending physician, genital urinary oncology service, Sydney Kimmel Center for Prostate mm-hmm. and Urologic Diseases, Memorial Stone Kettering Cancer Center. She's professor of medicine, department of medicine, while college of Cornell University. And Dr. Sullivan is gonna address tips to communicate more effectively with the healthcare team about cancer and other health problems, or we call them comorbidities. And coordinating your loved one's care and follow-up appointments, which often falls in the scope of a caregiver, and planning ahead with your pharmacist in terms of lead time and refilling prescriptions, planning for weekends, travel, and holidays. So it's really my pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Sloven.
2: Thank you, Carolyn, and good afternoon, everyone. Uh, As Carolyn has just mentioned, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about the ways to communicate more effectively, and I hope I'm going to impart some wisdom in terms of how the caregivers can communicate better with the whole healthcare team, and not to mention, but the patient himself or herself. So there is a root of evil in oncology for many of you, who, if you don't know, and that is poor communication. If there's one thing that will drive us to drink, pardon the expression, it's poor communication across the board with the whole team. Sometimes it's poor communication on the part of the doctor, not really being taking the time to discuss a treatment or the treatment side effects or just the overall uh, prognosis or what the patient can or cannot do is poor communication sometimes between the physician and the caregiver as well as poor communication between the caregiver and patient and the caregiver with the whole team. There's no question that being a caregiver can be overwhelming. There are a lot of challenges. These are very often people who our sons, daughters, close friends, relatives that may or may not have medical training or may be older such that their energy levels are not what they used to be. And it provides a major challenge for them. And that's really where Communication becomes a major factor in really taking care of the patient. As physicians, as nurses, as radiation doctors, as urologists, as the whole team, psychiatrists are involved, we, of course, always... Pander to the patient. We want to know what the patient is feeling. How can we make the patient more comfortable? How do we address pain, constipation, uh, poor medical compliance with drugs? Well, that's our problem usually, but think of it. When you go home... It's the health care provider, the husband, the wife, the son, the daughter, the sister, the brother, the aide who are faced with these challenges. We're conversant in it, but you aren't. So what is very, very important, and what we have tried to is to stress is that people should reach out to their doctors. Many institutions or even private practices these days have programs that not only support the caregiver but also try to make things a lot easier for that caregiver to be educated in how to take care of a patient with cancer. Uh, it's amazing how we start off with giving a patient chemotherapy when their caregiver is sitting there and everybody looks like a deer in the headlights. And everybody says, well, I'm not sure what to look look for what do I do? And you can give all the information cards you can for people to read up and be educated. But there is nothing more valuable to a patient than a phone call coming from the doctor or nurse the day after treatment and saying to both the caretaker and the patient, How are you doing? And very often the patient and or the caretaker will say, you know, it really wasn't that bad. And I think half of the, the anxiety that the, the family faces is not knowing what to expect. So if you hold somebody's hand and walk them through it, nine times out of ten, everybody gets a better understanding. I would give you one caveat to that. So why we, while we as caregivers and practitioners, for example, want to do right by the patient and get to know the family members who are involved in the care, one of the greatest obstacles that you could put in front of your doctor or nurse is having a different care member be involved every single time you come to a visit with your doctor. I will cite a family that has five wonderful children, five wonderful in-laws that go along with the respective children, and unfortunately, ten different people who show up at the clinic visit. And each time, another person, who I barely know, says, oh, so could you go back and explain everything? To do that ten times is not fair to the doctor or nurse. There should be one person, in addition to the husband or wife, for example, who is the caretaker or the caregiver or at least one child, who will disseminate the knowledge and the knowledge learned from the clinic visit and give it to the brothers or sisters. What often happens is you're dealing with different people every single time, and I have found it to be a major encumbrance that none of these people come will tell the respective siblings what's going on. So Anytime you need treatment, by all means, even as a caregiver, if there is somebody in the family who's going to be coming along with you, it really should be the same person so that another set of ears can hear what's going on, but that other person can come in with questions and the like. As a caregiver, it's important that you take notes. Take a little had with you in a pencil, and make a little note to yourself before you get to the doctor 's office so that you can remember what it is that you wanted to ask, because everybody comes in, everybody 's agreeable, everybody runs down to get their treatment, and then at the eleventh hour, nobody remembered what was very important. Part of your healthcare care team is your pharmacy. Hard to believe, but it is. And after a while, you're going to find that you get to know your pharmacist very well, particularly when it comes to getting pain medications and the like. There are a lot of insurance constraints these days. I will be the first person to tell you that. Not only when it comes to getting pre-authorizations, but sometimes some states mandate that a prescription be written in a certain way for pain medication in order to get that pain medication to the patient. I would tell people that if you are a caregiver, number one, try to get a better handle on your insurance uh, plan. Number two, let the person who is going to be renewing your uh, prescription, particularly in the doctor's office, be aware that there may be constraints because we're trained to take care of this. Excuse me, we are all able to to do so to facilitate. And in fact, some of the newer drugs in prostate cancer. Mandate that the prescription go through a specialty pharmacy in order to be dispensed. And what that means is that it's not in your routine pharmacy. It has to be pre certified by insurance before it's dispensed. Now, there are mechanisms in place in order to get funding for people who are in need, but the point is that the more information we have as part of the healthcare team, the easier we can make it for you. And the most important thing is please don't wait for Friday at 4.45 p.m. to call a doctor's office to get a renewal on your medication. Please, if you are a caregiver uh, or a patient, please look at the amount of pain medications you have before your weekend comes. Call us in the morning because sometimes we need to get a pre-certification. We really need to be able to uh, get to that pharmacy and if you leave it for the very last part of the day believe me we don't go home early but the rest of the world does and then when it happens we can facilitate giving you medication and some people will go cold turkey without their medication and go into a pain crisis People need to feel comfortable enough to talk to their doctor, and that goes for the caregivers as well. If you have problems, if you're overwhelmed, there are support services for you as well to help you with this. You are not alone. And I tell this to patients and their, their kin, if you will, all the time. You're not alone. We're all part of a family. We've all had somebody in our family with cancer of some sort, and our goal is to try to support one another, and we are able to do so. Very, very successfully. On one final note, I will say that another thing that's very important that's often not discussed in Cancer clinics, and that is what does a patient want, or does a family giver, a family caregiver, know what the patient wants in case of an emergency? What if the patient has to be hospitalized? What if there are events that change abruptly that might require significant interventions that might not be to the advantage of the patient? Perhaps the patient is older and frail, or perhaps the patient has certain religious convictions that would would mitigate any interventions that might prolong life. Again, this is all part of communication. It should be discussed that uh, that a caregiver or even the patient lets somebody know about what they are. We're not talking about somebody dying tomorrow, but sometimes knowing what a person's religious convictions are or knowing that a person would want certain things done if something ever were to happen actually gives us a better sense of security because we can do what that patient wants. So a lot of things to consider and please remember you are not alone. So with that I'm going to conclude and thank you for your attention and back to you, Carolyn. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Sloven. That was really outstanding. And I have to say that
1: um, that very important message to people that they are not alone, that you're not alone, that there's this whole team of people. And you're going to be hearing from other members of the healthcare team. Um, um, throughout this program and so this is really a multidisciplinary program to address this very complicated topic. Um, So um, our next speaker is Dr. Allison Applebaum and Dr. Applebaum is an assistant attending psychologist, director, caregivers clinic, Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. And Dr. Applebaum is going to address what research tells us about caregivers, including long-distance caregivers, the stresses and rewards of caregiving, time-saving and practical self-care tips. It's really my pleasure to now uh, bring to you and introduce to you uh, my esteemed colleague, Dr. Applebaum, and she will present to you now.
3: Thank you, Carolyn, and good afternoon, everyone. I'm so happy to be on this call with you. So I'm going to be talking about a little bit about what the research tells us about caregivers, who they are, and what the experiences and challenges are. And I I feel like I'm speaking to the choir here because I know that the majority of of you on this call are caregivers, have been caregivers, or will be caregivers. So not surprisingly, the World Health Organization estimates that approximately 8% of our global population is dependent on others for care. Um, just last year, one-third, one in every third household in the United States, had a caregiver. Um, this translated into 65.7 million Americans, about 5 million of whom were providing care to a patient with cancer. Caregivers are predominantly female and providing care to a parent, and over one-third are providing care to two or more people at one time. Um, Importantly, a recent estimate found that approximately 18% of all caregivers are providing care from a distance. This, is, this was indicated as anything from 200 miles away from the patient. Um, so a lot of you are providing care from a distance, and you're traveling quite, quite a while to, to meet the needs of your, of your loved ones. Um, what do caregivers do? I often get this question and I answer it with what don't caregivers do. Um, caregivers do so much. They, they perform activities of daily living, help with activities of daily living, what we call instrumental support, helping patients um, with dressing, accommodating um, daily needs, accompanying to medical appointments, helping with medications. Importantly, what oftentimes gets overlooked, however, is the emotional support provided by caregivers. And this is done at a time when caregivers are oftentimes in need of their own emotional support. Um, In terms of time, on average, caregivers provide care for 8.3 hours a day for 13.7 months. This is a full-time job oftentimes performed on top of another full-time job. Um, About one-third of caregivers are also providing care for five or more years. So this is not a necessarily time-limited role. This is a position that goes on for years um, and a situation of chronic stress for many. Um, Recently, the annual economic value of caregiving in the United States was estimated at $375 billion dollars. Um, I say this just to acknowledge the fact that caregivers really do make up the largest and perhaps most important growing element of our healthcare system in the United States today. Um, Not surprisingly, based on the data I just cited, the majority of caregivers do experience what we call caregiver burden. You've probably heard this term before. Um, It's used in in many different ways, so I want to define it. It's a multidimensional construct that refers to all the possible ways in which the caregiving role can negatively impact your experience as a caregiver. Um, There is a psychological component. Um, Caregivers are at risk for their own, what we call psychopathology, for example, anxiety or depression. And this is an important point um, that I often share, that we find in the research, in our clinical experience, that rates of diagnostic levels of anxiety and depression These are higher among caregivers than among the patients for whom they're providing care. So it's quite normal to experience anxiety or depression, though we want to address this, and I'm going to discuss this in a few moments. Um, Another element of caregiver burden is physical or medical complications or problems. Caregivers are at significant risk for their own medical problems. These include cardiovascular disease, poor immune functioning, fatigue or sleep difficulties, and actually higher rates of mortality. I'm sure you can think back to a time when you were feeling emotionally stressed and you also felt that you were more prone to getting a cold or a flu at that time because your immune system was down. There are three other components of burden, and one is financial. Uh, Many caregivers um, have to give up their their daytime full-time employment in order to fulfill that on average 8.3 hours a day of work. And there are financial burdens associated with taking care of a loved one with cancer um, in addition to paying for medications, et cetera. There is a temporal burden, a time burden, meaning the time that is spent providing care, and oftentimes this can range from just a few hours a day to sometimes 24 hours a day. And there's a third component, I'm sorry, a fifth component of burden, which I call the existential component of burden. And I want to describe this because it's perhaps one of the most common but less discussed. So existential distress, um, most cancer caregivers are going to experience something called existential distress, and this includes feelings of hopelessness and powerlessness, feeling like you might be a burden to others, a decreased sense of meaning or purpose in your life, and anxiety about the future, anxiety about the potential death of your loved one if prognosis is poor. Um, Among cancer caregivers, existential distress can lead to questions about one's sense of identity, for example, who am I now that I'm no longer working, or who will I be when my loved one's no longer here? Um, It can lead to feelings of guilt um, and desire, guilt as well as a desire to take responsibility for oneself, so guilt for actually taking time off from taking care of one's loved one. Um, It can involve fearing your loved one's death, but also the idea that you have to face the possibility of your loved one's death if prognosis is poor. Um, What's important to note is that existential distress of any kind can make it difficult to perform caregiving responsibilities, whether they're providing assistance with activities of daily living or providing that emotional support I mentioned earlier. It also makes it a lot harder for you to take care of yourself, and this in turn makes it harder for you to take care of your loved one. Um, I'm going to speak at the end a little bit about how to deal with existential distress, which is certainly um, an important point. What I do want to say though is that if burden, if distress is not addressed, it will only increase over the caregiving trajectory from diagnosis and treatment into survivorship, or if there's a recurrence in disease progression. So, how can we recognize the signs and symptoms of burden? Um, It's important to to really keep your eyes and ears open for these within yourself or within others who are caregivers. Um, Some of the signs are a caregiver no longer being able to carry out his or her responsibilities, whether those are the responsibilities to the patient or responsibilities to oneself. Um, It can also manifest as increased anger or irritability or difficulty managing one's emotions. Or more frequent medical problems, as I mentioned earlier, um, thinking about a time when you were feeling stressed, you likely had a lowered immune system. And the more, more often that you have colds or flus or susceptible to other problems, that's also a red flag indicator that it's time to get help. Another red flag is engaging in what we call poor health-related behaviors. Um, these include increased drinking alcohol, increased smoking, Um, poor eating habits, not exercising, not attending to one's sleep. All of these things need attention in order for one to fully carry out the responsibilities of caregiver. And certainly the greatest red flag would be any direct communication of any depression, depressive symptoms, or suicidal ideation, feelings like life is no longer worth living. Um, How can you get help if you or a loved one has experienced any of this? The first is to activate your support networks, and this can be informal support within your family, within your friends, within your coworkers if you're still working, or accessing formal support either through cancer care or other organizations, through an institution where your loved one may be receiving care. There likely is some support for caregivers, and making sure that you're receiving the support that you need with a professional, a licensed social worker or a psychologist or a psychiatrist. It's also important to remember, and I'm sure that many of you on this phone call have have had this experience, that support can also come from unlikely sources and that individuals in your support network in the beginning who always gave you support may no longer be able to do so, but others may actually be able to step up to the plate. I think it's also really important to recognize what we mean by self-care. I think many people think, oh, self-care means taking days off or going on vacation or going for a massage. And certainly those things are all good for all of us on this call. But it also means creating distance between individuals who are not helping you or not making you feel good about yourself. It's recognizing when you feel guilty and why you might be feeling guilty, and it's allowing yourself to express your emotions when they come up and to remember that it's perfectly normal and appropriate to feel both happiness and sadness in times of caregiving and that it's also normal to feel feel anger and frustration at times with the patient for whom you're providing care. Um, So I've I've just taken a few minutes to talk about all the possible negative things that can happen as a result of providing care, and I always like to end on a positive note. And I mentioned earlier this idea of existential distress. Um, And I just want to end by by discussing the fact that despite um, the statistics, despite the fact that most caregivers, 80%, will experience some anxiety at some point while providing care, Providing care is also an opportunity to have an increased feeling of meaning in your life, a sense of purpose, and actually to experience some personal growth. Meaning and stress can coexist. Finding meaning in your caregiving role is not about making lemonade out of lemons. Certainly that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that sometimes the most stressful experiences can also be significant sources of meaning. And so what's important is learning while you're recognizing what's difficult and recognizing these red flags about distress, to also allow yourself to direct your attention to parts of caregiving that are meaningful, even if they're stressful. So in addition to helping you deal with distress, helping you to find a sense of meaning and purpose can help you to feel a little bit empowered. So, for example, I encourage everyone on this call to think about if being a caregiver has helped, them, has helped you to feel good in any way, has it helped you to learn new things about yourself in any way? Has it made you feel like a stronger person or a better person in any way? Has it helped you to understand the importance of love in any way? And has it given your life a purpose and a sense of meaning? And I'll end on that. Thank you.
1: Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Applebaum. That was amazing and uh, really wonderful, and um, really, um, I think um, you've really covered so many of the different array of emotions that people have, and, and you've concluded in a way that allows everyone to think about these wonderful questions that you've asked, and perhaps we can ask those questions again during the Q&A, and perhaps um, we we also, during the, there will be a question and answer when all of our speakers conclude the remarks. And we certainly can ask a question, but you also could share with us perhaps things that um, work for you, or um, or also in answer to the, some of the questions that Dr. Applebaum has posed. Um, you know, um, new things you may have learned. If being a caregiver helps you feel good, um, do you feel like a better person? So all those kinds of things. Um, any of the things that you heard that that help resonate for you, that's okay to say during the Q and A as well. So, um, so we'll leave it open in that in that respect. But thank you, and I know there'll be lots of discussion about this during the Q and A. So thank you. And our next speaker is Ms. Deborah Wolf. Uh, Ms. Wolf is an attorney. She's a supervising attorney, Legal Health, New York Legal Assistance Group, or New York NILAG. And um, Ms. Wolf is going to be addressing an array of topics, really, um, and very important topics for caregivers to be aware of. Um, So learning how to appeal, insurance, Medicare, and provider denials. This is all going to sound familiar to all of you. These are issues that you all confront. Finding the practical help you need. And so from the federal side, from Medicare, VA benefits if they apply, and Family Medical Leave Act, or FMLA, and from the state, Medicaid, and then in general, legal advocacy tips for caregivers. And so it's my great pleasure now to turn this program over to uh, Ms. Wolf, my esteemed colleague.
4: Thank you, Dr. Messner. I'm, I'm so pleased to be a part of this teleconference. And I know that most of you on the call today are caregivers. And for purposes of ease, I'll be referring to you or yours when discussing insurance. But I do know that you're here due to your caregiving of family and friends. I'm going to give an overview of the process of appealing insurance claims. I'll also discuss some resources for navigating the complex world of insurance and also some some tips on what you can do to help avoid insurance issues and unnecessary work as well as better support for your loved ones. In discussing insurance, I can't stress how important it is as a start to take the time to understand the benefits and limitations of your health plans. The most important advice I can give is to have and read a copy of your policy, or at the very least a summary description. This will outline your benefits, coverage limits, and the appeals process which we'll discuss in a bit. Your insurance company representative can also be a great resource to call if you have questions about what is or is not covered. Some things you need to know is whether your policy is an HMO, which allows only in-network doctors, or a plan that allows for out-of-network doctors, but often at a much reduced reimbursement rate. Policies can also limit certain coverages, such as physical therapy visits or home nursing visits. You must review the policies offered and discuss with those who offer support, such as a medical team or a social worker to make sure you're covered for all necessary treatment and care. But even with current insurance protections, claims are sometimes denied. Denials can be for many reasons. For example, a specific medical service the insurance company claims is not medically necessary or that the service, service is not covered under the policy. Also, if you need to see a specialist and feel that you have to go out of network for the best care, the insurance company could deny services but there are exceptions and it's important to understand that your insurance company saying no now may not be the final decision later. The insurance company is required to provide an explanation of benefit, or EOB, for each claim reviewed. The EOB outlines the amount paid by your insurance, your required contribution, which is a copay or percentage, or if they're not paying, the reasons for denial. It's important to read every EOB to make sure the claim has been paid, and if not, the reasons for the denial. When a claim is denied, the first step should be to call the insurance company right away to discuss. There's many reasons a claim may be denied, and often the insurance company just needs more documentation from your doctor's office to approve. Claims are also sometimes denied for administrative reasons that are easy to fix. And just make sure to keep track of every call or letter written and who you spoke with at the insurance company. Insurance companies have to tell you fully why they denied a claim. And you have the right to a full copy of the insurance file prior to the appeal to see how they reached the decision, including notes by the case handler and any reports by the insurance company doctor who reviewed your claim. If the matter can't be resolved by speaking with the insurance company, you have the right to file an appeal. Often the first appeal is submitted through your doctor's office, so be sure to talk to your medical team and coordinate with them. In the written appeal, document the reasons you disagree with the insurance company and always include medical records and a letter from the treating doctor. If the insurance company denies the appeal, you then have the right to request an external review, which gives you the right to file an appeal to an outside objective and independent panel, no matter where you live and what type of health insurance you have. If the external reviewer overturns your insurer's denial, your insurance company must give you the payments or services requested. And the good news is that around half of all denied claims that are appealed are finally allowed coverage and the percentage is even higher for external reviews. I can't stress how important it is to make sure you understand the time limits to file an appeal as these are very strict deadlines. If you have a policy from work, the time limit is usually 180 days. For other plans, or with Medicaid or Medicare, the deadline is often as short as 60 to 120 days. But if a claim is denied, you will receive written notice about how to appeal, so it's so important to read these notices. Now, along with private health plans, either from employment or from the marketplace, People often access insurance through Medicare, Medicaid, or if you're a veteran, through the Veterans Administration. Medicare and Medicaid are both government-sponsored health insurance. Medicare is a federal program with rules that are uniform to all participants in all 50 states. Medicare is available to most people age 65 or older, and if under 65, a person who's been receiving Social Security disability benefits For a period of 24 months there are programs on a state or federal level that assist lower income medicare recipients this includes extra help which helps with medicare drug costs and there's also the medicare savings program which varies state to state but if a person qualifies their part b medicare premium which is currently 134 dollars a month is paid by the state, so it's really important to understand what's offered in your state and how it might help the friends or family that you support. Now, Medicaid is a federal-state partnership with shared authority and financing and coverage is free. Eligibility rules are established mainly by each state and they vary depending on where you live. Access is based on being low income, with a limit on how much you can have in income and assets. But for those who are disabled or elderly with higher income, one can often become eligible through special Medicaid programs. Medicaid can provide needed home care, transportation, or full prescription coverage not offered with other insurances. Both Medicare and Medicaid have an appeal process, but it's very different from private insurance. Medicare sends out a quarterly summary notice of claims, and the appeal time limit starts to run from the receipt of this notice. Generally, you have 120 days to file an appeal. Medicare also has five levels of appeal, and the time limits vary. In the Medicare appeals I've handled for clients, I find them to be very helpful when I call for a status, but they don't send out a lot of correspondence about the appeal, so you do have to stay on top and call often. With Medicaid, it's important to know your state laws which govern Medicaid appeals. Anytime there's a denial of a claim or coverage, they do have to provide notice and information on how to appeal and request a hearing. There are two excellent resources for not only Medicare appeals, but really everything about Medicare from eligibility to troubleshooting. The first is the Medicare website, medicare.gov, which has a lot of helpful information. If there's a problem or questions the website can't help with, there's a terrific organization called the Medicare Rights Center. They have an interactive website at medicarerights.org and also a call-in number to speak to someone um, who can discuss your concerns or questions. I also want to briefly address services for our veterans. If you served in the military for even a day, you may be eligible for VA benefits. Coverage varies, and there are priority groups based on factors such as service-related disabilities, POWs, homebound, and many more. Levels of coverage and copayments, including those for prescriptions, are complicated and they vary. But if you're a vet, you can call the Veterans Health Administration, and I'll give you that number in a minute, to determine what you may be eligible for. There are also a growing number of legal service organizations which provide help to veterans. Here in New York, my organization, NILAG, has a number of programs to meet the legal needs of our vets. Some web-based research or a call to your local bar association may provide referrals for the help you need. And I do want to give you the number for the Veterans Health Administration. It's 877-222-8387. So I was also asked to suggest some legal advocacy tips for caregivers and I want to start by mentioning a law, the Family Medical Leave Act, or FMLA, that's very important to caregivers who are employed. FMLA applies to employers with 50 or more employees and to be covered, you must have worked at your job for 12 months. If you qualify, you're entitled to 12 weeks of job-protected leave every 12 months. This is either for a person's own serious health condition or to care for a spouse, child, or parent. FMLA can be taken in a block of time up to 12 weeks, or intermittently on an ad-needed basis. So, for example, if your family member has chemo every other Thursday, you can request intermittent FMLA for every other Thursday, and even Friday, up to the equivalent of 12 weeks per year. Employee benefits, such as health insurance, must continue for the 12 weeks as well, although the employee must continue to pay any contributions made for the premiums. Another thing I want to is, mention is, is how important it is to encourage your loved one to make sure that, that they've completed advanced directives, such as health care proxies or living wills. The healthcare proxy form allows a person to name an agent to make healthcare decisions for them if they become incapacitated and unable to communicate with their medical team. The form is very simple to prepare and usually requires just witnesses. And the living will is different from a healthcare proxy in that the proxy chooses someone to make decisions and the living will sets forth what a person's wishes are. Both are simple documents and can be prepared without an attorney And as Dr. Sloven discussed, this will really help to make sure communications with the medical team remain open and that your words are being followed. Getting back to insurance for a minute, I just want to stress again to make sure to read every letter received, including explanation of benefits. I speak with people all the time who lose coverage because they didn't feel well enough to open and read their mail. Insurance companies, whether private, Medicare or Medicaid, have very strict notice requirements and they have to tell you if there's a problem, but you need to know what's going on in order to address any issues that may come up. Also, remember there's an open enrollment period for Medicare, so it's important to read the notices because if you miss deadlines, you may miss coverage. If necessary, talk to someone who understands and can provide advice. This may be someone from an insurance company, an organization such as cancer, or an attorney like myself who offers free advice to cancer patients. There is a National Cancer Legal Service Network, a group of attorneys like myself who offer free legal advice and help to people with cancer, and you can check to see what help may be available to you in your state. And that website is nclsn.org. And I'll repeat that it's NCLSN. It stands for National Cancer Legal Service Network dot org. Now, in conclusion, I've discussed a few options for insurance, including private plans, Medicare, Medicaid, and VA benefits. But it is possible to be eligible for more than one of these. For example, Medicaid and Medicare together, VA and Medicare or Medicaid. Uh, But the rules are complex, complex, but make sure that you maximize whatever benefits you may be entitled to. And this is particularly true with Medicare, which pays only 80% of claims. 20% can be very costly, and a person with Medicare needs secondary policy to cover that gap. Medicare also has inadequate coverage for prescriptions and often very high copays. So, important to look into meeting this gap through other coverage, extra help, or copay assistance foundations, which I know will be discussed shortly. I know this is a lot of information. I also know how difficult it is to keep on top of insurance matters and other matters with so much going on. But I think with an understanding of general rights and responsibilities, as well as help from your medical team and groups like cancer care, you'll be able to navigate any insurance or other issues or questions that come up either for yourself or your loved ones. Thanks so much.
1: Oh, thank you so much. Uh, this whole, that was really outstanding and really covering a great deal of information. It is true that there's a lot for people to absorb and many people have Awareness of these, but I think you really spelled out all of the details, and you are available for questions during the Q and A. So I know that that's going to be very helpful to people um, to have that as a resource. And thank you. And our next speaker is Ms. Carly O'Brien, and Ms. O'Brien is an oncology social worker, and she's cancer Care's caregiver program coordinator. Um, And um, Ms. O'Brien is going to address a number of topics, um, accessing resources for the cost of care, including home care and co-payment assistance foundations, tips on choosing community and medical resources to improve your quality of life, and she'll also review Cancer Care's free psychosocial programs and services. It's really my pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, uh, Ms. O'Brien.
5: Thank you so much, Dr. Messner, I'm glad to be on this call today. I'm going to pack in a lot of information to a short amount of time, so just rest assured that the resources that we're going to go over today will be given to you at the end of this teleconference today. I want to talk a little bit about accessing resources to manage the costs of care, including home care and copayment assistance foundations first. So we know that the financial and practical impacts of a cancer diagnosis can be incredibly burdensome, and that this is a source of distress for a lot of people with cancer, but also their caregivers. Between government programs, private and nonprofit organizations, as well as other charities, there might be assistance to help manage some of the cost of your loved one's care. But it can be really overwhelming to even know where to start. It can be difficult to know if what your loved one needs is hands-on help patient navigation, or financial support. Many caregivers take on the role of coordinating this all themselves to alleviate the patient from the extra stress, but this can be a complicated process and may feel like an isolating and frustrating experience given all the time and energy that can be involved. But you're not alone and hopefully today, you know, my co-presenters and I will be able to offer some guidance and insight to make this all seem a little bit more attainable to start, I'd suggest prioritizing what your needs are, communicate openly about them, and seek out some basic information. This should be a dialogue between you and your loved one with cancer and may require an ongoing discussion and follow-up. It may be helpful to discuss what kind of -of out-of-pocket costs you can expect with your loved one's insurance provider. Ask if your loved one has any home care or long-term care coverage, including a visiting nurse or aide and explore what their out-of-pocket drug costs may be. Doing this early in the process can be helpful. We always think that being proactive goes a long way. When it comes to home care assistance, it's also important to differentiate about home care versus home health care. So consider if your loved one's needs are medical in nature or not. Knowing this information up front will likely to help you get the right kind of help that you need. You don't have to do this alone. So make sure to enlist the support of a patient navigator or social worker who might be able to help you find access to resources. They'll likely have more experience to help you understand the various various systems that are in play to help provide financial support. And speaking with the financial department at your loved one's treatment center might also help to provide some insight about any programs that they have to offset costs of care. Now it's important to recognize that each different organization might provide a different and specific type of help. They might have different eligibility criteria that one needs to meet in order to get support. And unfortunately, there isn't one go-to program to offset all the costs that you might be running into, but keep in mind that oftentimes getting a little bit of support from a few different places can really add up significantly. When it comes to caregiving and home care, Some states do have programs that will pay someone to be a caregiver. This can help to manage the home care needs without an added expense. This isn't available everywhere, but to find out if your state has a program, reach out to your State Department of Aging or local Medicaid office. If this isn't possible, there are some other organizations that might be able to help you explore what home care options are available and what might be affordable for you. Consider reaching out to the Elder Care Locator at 1-800-677-1116, the Arch National Respite Locator at archrespite.org, and the National Association for Home Care and Hospice at nahc.org, as they might help you to locate home care providers and other services in your area. Cancer Care also offers limited financial assistance to offset some home care-related costs for patients. To get more information about this, please contact us at 1-800-813-4673. And while this won't cover all of the costs of home care, it might provide a little bit of relief and an opportunity to speak with a social worker who can hopefully provide some more direction. Now, when talking more specifically about co-payment assistance programs, Generally, the programs that are out there will help with copayments on out-of-pocket drug or prescription costs. Some may help with insurance premiums. Many pharmaceutical companies offer copayment assistance to offset drug expenses, so you might want to start by reaching out to their customer service lines for more information. The Partnership for Prescription Assistance does also have a search engine that can help you to explore other ideas about patient assistance programs to help with medication costs and their website is www.pparx.org. And while I'll note a few other specific resources for copayment assistance now, keep in mind that we at Cancer Care have a fact sheet that lists all of these resources, and you can find that at www.cancercare.org. So Cancer Care has a copayment assistance foundation that can be reached at cancercarecopay.org or 866 5-5 copay, and that's going to help people to afford copayments for chemotherapy and targeted drugs for specific cancer types. The HealthWell Foundation provides financial assistance to cover coinsurance and copayments, sometimes health insurance uh, premiums and deductibles for certain medications or therapies, um, and their website is www.healthwellfoundation.org. Or you can call them at 1 800 675 8416 for more information. The Patient Advocate Foundation has a copay relief program. Again, um, they also have case managers who serve as active liaisons between the patient and their insurer, employer, and creditors. So they really help in a lot of different ways, both through their direct copay assistance fund, but also with the case management side of things. You can find more information about their program at copays.org or calling them at 866-512-3861. And again, these are just a few of the many resources that are out there. Feel free to refer to CancerCare's website at cancercare.org. We do list these and other organizations that might be useful, but we just wanted to give you a starting place today uh, in terms of where to go for support. So talking about tips on choosing community and medical resources is really important because finding these kinds of resources can improve your quality of life as a caregiver. So again, I cannot emphasize enough the importance of enlisting support and asking for help as you navigate being a caregiver and coordinating the care of your loved one. You don't have to do this alone. So there are many, many other community and medical resources to help you manage your role as caregiver, to support your loved one, and coordinate their care. But finding help and support in practical medical and emotional matters can improve your quality of life significantly, and it can really help you to feel connected and supported along the way. Again, I will list some of these resources today, but know that the volume of these resources is really quite significant. So, again, be sure to enlist additional support from a patient navigator or hospital social worker for additional guidance. First, as it was mentioned earlier, keep in mind that some of the best sources of information and support are your loved one's doctors and treatment team. Doctors, nurses, hospitals, social workers, and patient navigators have a shared goal of providing information and support to help you manage your experience with cancer and caregiving. If you're ever unsure where to look for resources or information, they can be incredibly helpful in answering questions and pointing you toward other resources. So for medical information, visit the National Cancer Institute's website at cancer.gov or call their cancer information service line at one 800 422 Um, Similarly, the American Society of Clinical Oncology also provides reliable medical information at cancer.net. The American Cancer Society has a 24-hour call center where they can provide information on community programs, answer questions about cancer, and that number is 800-227-2345. Cancer Care has a dedicated caregiver section of our website with lots of resources. You can find that directly at cancercare.org caregiving. And the United Way, while not necessarily cancer-focused, is a really good resource that can help you find out specific, practical, and supportive programs that are available in your area. You can usually dial them at 211. There are some other organizations that really are aimed at providing free online communities to coordinate friends and family to help you manage your caregiving tasks. One of these is called My Cancer Circle, and their website is mycancercircle.lotsahelpinghands.com. really serves as a one-stop forum where caregivers can share their story, address their practical needs, and keep people informed about updates via the web. Um, People can sign up for certain tasks like helping with transportation, meals, or childcare, and many caregivers find this to be a big relief to coordinate this all in one place. And again, there are a lot more community resources that are aimed at helping you to manage the impact of caregiving, and while access to local resources can vary based on your situation and where you live, there are also many national organizations to provide support to. Again, your hospital social worker or patient navigator may help you hone in on those programs that are specific to your area. And Cancer Care is always here to help in whatever ways we can. So as I've mentioned, Cancer Care is a good starting place in seeking practical help, financial assistance, and supportive services. As a reminder, we're a national nonprofit organization staffed by licensed master's level social workers. All of our services are free. We offer individual counseling, support groups, educational resources like the Connect Education workshop you're listening to right now, and our social work staff can provide information about other resources, practical help, and some limited financial assistance. If you're interested in learning any more about our services or have questions about what you've heard today, please call our toll-free HOPE line at 1-800-813-4673 to speak with an oncology social worker or visit our website at www.cancercare.org. Thanks so much for your time today. Back to you, Carolyn.
1: Oh, thank you so much. Uh, That was really wonderful. And as always, Carly, so full of information for everybody. And all the resources that Ms. O'Brien mentioned are going to be listed, of course, and resources that we'll be sending to you. Now, we do have um, time for questions. We have actually a lot of time for questions. I'm going to ask... Um, Crystal, to go ahead and explain to you how to ask questions. We're going to try to take as many of your questions as possible. If we do not get to your question, then of course we will tell you at the very end how to get your questions answered. But for now, let's see how many of your questions we can take. Uh, Crystal?
0: Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star, then one on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. And as a reminder, again, to ask a question, please press star and then one.
1: So we do have a question from one of our online participants. And um, I'm going to ask Dr. Applebaum if you could address this question um, to begin with. Um, How do I encourage my husband to take more time for himself? He takes the best care of me, and I always tell him how thankful I am for his support. However, he tends not to listen when I tell him he needs to focus on his needs too. Adjust this in a is the general way, good... and then.
3: Sorry, say that again.
1: Oh, I think the, la- adjust the last part of it. The
3: general me- way, of course. Sure, 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 sure. This is in such a common way. question. Yeah, yeah. So so how do how do you encourage your loved one to take care of him or herself? And and really I think um one of the best things you can say that is I appreciate so much all the time that you're taking and you know, you're putting into taking care of me. Um it means the world to me that you are and I also know that in order to take care of me, you really need time for yourself. So What I need most from you, the way that you can help me right now is actually just to take the afternoon for yourself or, you know, take that time to do X, Y, or Z. Frame it as you can help me. You can help to perform your role as a caregiver By taking this time for you and if you've noticed something about how your loved one is functioning if they've gotten more frustrated or irritable or if they're having difficulty sleeping or if they're having you know more colds say you know the best thing you can do for me today is make that appointment with your with your primary care doctor and get a physical and frame it in the context of your own care that usually is quite effective excellent
1: Thank you and um Mr. Vine do you want to add anything to that?
5: I think that was a really good answer and oftentimes um it's all about language and timing. So, you know, offering this suggestion in terms of of good self-care and recognizing that it's going to be twofold, the benefits usually can be heard in a different way than just saying, oh, take care of yourself. So I think sort of being specific also about what someone can do to help themselves uh, might make them feel a little bit less, quote, unquote, selfish in doing so and taking them up on that offer.
1: Excellent. Thank you. And we have another question from one of our online participants. Um, and that one is, um, and that one I'm going to address um, again as to uh, Dr. Applebaum and to Ms O'Brien as well. Um, what are my options, and Ms. O'Brien, if you could start with this one, what are my options for getting anonymous help in person or on the phone? Online groups haven't worked for me in the past, and I would prefer in-person support, but I am a prominent member in my small community and worry about being recognized. So Ms. O'Brien, if you could address it to begin with, and then if then Dr. Applebaum.
5: That's a good question, and it is certainly something that I've heard before. Um, You know, I think it takes a lot for people to seek out support, especially if they feel like they have a presence in their community. I think there's also still, unfortunately, a stigma associated with mental health support. So a lot of the access to services in person will really depend on where someone lives. Oftentimes, we would suggest talking to the social worker at your loved one's treatment center, Um, see if they can offer some immediate support, at least when you're going in for appointments. That's a good starting place. Um, Sometimes reaching out to the local United Way at 211, they can help you to access um, different face-to-face or in-person mental health support. Um, Cancer Care does provide free telephone counseling, And so I know that's not in person, but it is a more individualized and personalized connection, which for a lot of people goes a long way. Um, And also talking to your primary care physician um, or your, your loved one's oncologist they might have ideas of, of where someone can turn in their community or just outside of their community to get that type of support. But support's really important. I can't underscore that enough. So I think just making those connections is really important.
1: Oh, excellent. Um, and I have a, a not question now for uh, Deborah Wolf, a question um, for Ms. Wolf. Um, in terms of just the um, the healthcare proxy, um, how does one go about arranging that? And... Um,
4: if you could say a little bit more about that for family members. Sure, so as I said, the healthcare proxies, um, regardless of the state that you're in, are very easy forms to complete. They usually don't require an attorney. Um, Most hospitals and medical centers usually have the state healthcare proxy form available. So I would start by asking your medical team. Um, a lot of the forms are also available online. For example, in New York, our healthcare proxy form is available through the State Department of Health website. And so, you know, I think with a, just a little bit of effort, you should be able to find the form that's applicable to your state and be able to complete it with uh, you know, perhaps with some guidance. But as I said, the forms usually don't require an attorney, just two independent witnesses to witness the signing.
1: And we have one late breaking question, which I'm going to address all the speakers today. But I'm going to ask Ms. Wolf to address it to begin with. What should we do when family members disagree with treatment decisions? If my loved one becomes incapacitated and I make decisions for them, how should I deal with relatives? when how should I deal with relatives who disagree with my decisions? So do you want to say something about that, Ms. Wolf, and then Dr. Applebaum and then Ms. O'Brien?
4: Sure. And you know, that is a common problem. Um, sometimes people often have extended families who for many different reasons, I think as Dr. Sloven talked about, you know, have thoughts about medical the the, the right medical treatment. I think the first thing is, you know, to see if there's a healthcare agent and if there is, that's the person that's been trusted to make those decisions. And um the medical team generally has to honor the decisions made by the healthcare agent if the patient is no longer able to communicate those wishes um I do know in the hospitals that I work in social workers often have family meetings where they talk through these issues and try and you know bring the family on board but if that's not possible because there's just too many disagreeing members then really just to look at you know is there a healthcare proxy who was the agent that was designated and that's the person who has the right to make the decisions for people that don't have healthcare proxies. Most states do have um, surrogate decision-making laws that set a hierarchy of people that are allowed to make decisions or authorized to make decisions from spouse to adult children to parents. So, um, in that circumstance, if there's more than one person, then, again, a family meeting. And oftentimes, I know from speaking with um, the medical team that they often have to help the family make the decision that's in the medical best interest of the patient. Excellent. And Dr. Applebaum?
3: Sure. Just to, to add on a little bit, I agree 100% with, with what Deborah has shared. Um you know, I, I think oftentimes there are disagreements among family members around patients' wishes and, and framing decision-making in the context of what patients' goals of care were or are is really critical, um, highlighting what the patient's values are, um, can, be, can be helpful in these circumstances. Um, I think another thing that happens oftentimes is that there are one or two family members who are serving as primary caregivers through the majority of the caregiving trajectory. And then when there are transitions in care and decisions to be made, oftentimes other family members get involved sort of late in the game, and there are other agendas that get involved. And so the best thing that can be, that can happen at those moments is to engage in a family meeting, to have communication, and to have a family meeting that is conducted by um, the medical team and has a social worker involved. This is not something that caregivers should take upon themselves to do on their own, um, but have a trained professional to help to facilitate so that the patient's goals of care, their own wishes, can be shared, and the entire family can understand why an individual was chosen as the healthcare proxy to carry out those wishes.
1: Excellent. Thank you. Wow, great team here. And Ms. O'Brien, do you want to comment as well?
5: You know, I would echo what what both um, Ms. Wolf and Dr. Applebaum have said. Um, communication is really essential, but sometimes it's difficult. So. I think when these disagreements come up, also seeking outside support to help you cope with disappointments related to decision-making and, and frustrations in terms of family dynamics is also, there's value in that. So outside of the decision-making itself, dealing with the impact of the decision-making is also equally important. So I would say seek out support from a social worker or um, psychologist sort of outside of that. So um but everything I think my colleagues have said has been
1: spot on. Well, I just want to thank all of our speakers. You have been phenomenal. This has been an amazing call. Um, and We did stay a little, bit on, a little bit longer because we had such really terrific questions that people were bringing up, so I want to thank those who asked such great questions. Um, I also want to acknowledge all of you who have been listening and who may have questions that we did not get to answer, so I do want to let you all know how to get your questions answered. So you do have lots of resources that we're going to send you information about, and you certainly do have, of course, your treating healthcare team. So and the team consists of many people that are on the call today, so we want to be sure to involve those people. But sometimes I know you like to get information in other ways as well. We always recommend the National Cancer Institute at 1-800-422-6237 or to visit their a website at www.cancer.gov, they do have a live chat feature, and you actually can, uh, for the live chat feature, you can post your question, that little box pops up, you can post your question, and one of their information specialists will address your question. Um, for those would be any medical questions that you really want to get some more information on. However, if you would like to get support... Um, just in some of the emotional and social and practical issues that you're dealing with or financial concerns, you certainly can contact Cancer Care at 1-800-813-4673 or you may visit our website at www.cancercare.org. And again, you can post your question or concern and one of our oncology social workers will certainly be in touch with you and work with you around getting your questions and concerns addressed. Most importantly, as we conclude the program today, and as many of our speakers have said, we don't want you to feel alone. We want you to know that you're now part of a very large community of support, and we are here to help you. And so um, we do have – we always can call us any time. And also, um, please do know that we have a number of programs coming up today. We have another program actually coming up today. Um, One, and it might be very relevant to you who are caregivers, which is um, the importance of taking your pills on schedule. So many of you as caregivers help with this. And that program will take place between uh, 4 and 5 p.m. today, Eastern Time. And then we have another program at the end of this month on, on generic drugs and understanding their role in cancer treatment, and that's actually on June 29th um, between 1.30 and 2.30 p.m. Eastern time. So we have a lot of programs coming up. Please do feel free to participate in those programs. And uh, we very much appreciate your participation today and want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all and, uh, and wish you a very fine day.